All right, I am so glad you're here this morning. We're going through Philippians, and I think in the time it's taken me to go through Philippians, a number of you could have memorized the book, because I admit that I'm going kind of slow. But that's because I've lived with this book for 40 plus years, and just, just like, I, I savor it, and I can't get it all wedged into one class. So don't get upset and leave, just eat another donut and luxurate. It's air-conditioned and everything. Today I've entitled the lesson, The Macro, y'all come on in, we saved your seats. The Macro and the Micros of the Gospel. I'm not sure that's the best title, but it's the best I could come up with. Because it kind of gives me a chance to focus in. Now, macro and micro may not be terms that everybody is using in their vocabulary. Um, I really got to know the terms best when I was in school. And in school, while my degree is in biblical languages, my minor uh, was in economics. So I took... I don't know, 18 gazillion hours of economics classes. And when you study economics, beyond just the basics, actually it is one of the basics, economics is a subject where you take a course, or we did, in macroeconomics. Macro, actually being a good Greek word, I might add, Macro just is the idea that the, this is the big picture. This is the economy as a whole. Macroeconomics, what causes inflation? What's the, the relationship between inflation and unemployment? Um, what is the, you know, too many dollars chasing too few goods? And what are the implications? And blah, 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 blah. That's big picture economics. That was one semester course, but then the follow-up course the next semester was microeconomics. And if macro is the big picture, microeconomics are the individual decisions and factors. It's, it's the smaller focus. Macro means big, micro means small. That's why if you have a microscope, you're going to see things that are small. Okay, it, so macro big, micro small, we're going to look at the big picture and the individual picture of the gospel as Paul sets it out in the passage we've got today. So with that as our background, big picture, macro, small picture or individual picture, micros, let me tell you, we're doing something additional today. How many of y'all were here for the Galatians study that we did? See, <laughs> suckers for punishment. Um, our Galatians study actually has building blocks for today. So we're going to take something out of our Galatians study and we're going to use it in what we're about today. Now, we're starting out again at Philippians, um, whoops, sorry, Philippians 1, 3. <laughs> I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. Now, some of you are saying, you are going through this at a snail's pace, and that's true, but this is a 2,000-year-old letter. You can't just like, okay, I'm next page. 
And this thing's been around for 2,000 years. It's worth just spending a little bit of time looking at it. So I want us to focus on three points today as we do this. The first focus point is the fellowship of the gospel. We'll talk about what that means. The second is the fruition, the fruit of the gospel. And the third is life in the gospel. So those are our three points. That's your roadmap. As, as you walk through class with me today, we'll start with the fellowship of the gospel. So Paul has said, I thank my God in all your remembrance of me or all of my remembrance of you, depending on how it's translated, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. So here are three reasons. This is where we were last week. Three reasons he's thanking God for all your remembering of me, because of your participation in the gospel, and then we, we oh, go back, go back, go back. And this is where I've got to pick up today. Because of your partnership in the gospel, your koinonia humon eiston euangelion, your partnership in the gospel. Now, we got two different tracks we get to merge together here. Two different ideas. Because of your partnership in the gospel. Partnership, koinonia, is one word in that phrase. And the second is gospel. Now, I've tried to give you some visual ideas of what these Greek words mean as Paul is using them. Koinonia, the visual idea that I've given you, is this is that Greek word translated partnership or fellowship or any number of different things that relate to how we connect together. And the visual I've given you is an aspen grove. Because the idea of koinonia as an aspen grove is that all of these aspen trees in one grove, and by the way, looking at this picture, here's one aspen grove, here's a second aspen grove. Aspens are all connected in a grove by the roots. That's the koinonia, that's the commonness that they share. You can tell this aspen grove has a different root system than this one, because their leaves are turning at a different time and a different rate. And they all connect together within a grove. And that idea of this connectedness that shares nutrients, that shares uh, um, poisons, it, it, it can share whatever it may be, that's, that, that, that's the idea behind this Greek word of koinonia. So partnership, I want you to be thinking about the partnership in the gospel, partnership is the aspen grove. Now, gospel, here's where we're going to go back to Galatians, and Oliver's going to help us because his sister's not here. Gospel, euangelion in the Greek, means God's good news to humans. I say, actually, in the Greek, it just means good news. It, it, it's used in in lots of Hellenistic places beyond the Bible. But, but Paul uses it in terms of God's good news to human. But God's good news to human, the good news, isn't a biography of Jesus. 
You know, it's not a Matthew, Mark, Luke, John gospel. For, John, for Paul, the good news is the, come up here, come up here, come here, come here, Oliver, right here, ma'am. For Paul, the good news is what? The death, burial, and resurrection. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Oliver, you win. <laughs> Tell your sister she was not needed this morning. Oliver is a twin. Ava, his sister, uh, is the one who normally shouted that out because Oliver, are you the younger of the two? You're the older. So he would let the baby of the family answer the questions because that's who he is. But the gospel, Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was resurrected as will be those who are with him, in him. And so if that's what Paul typically means as he uses the word gospel, could he mean that here? Because of your Aspen Grove, your fellowship, your koinonia in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's precisely what he means. Because the Aspen Grove that is all connected with a common root system under the ground. The commonness of our root system that connects us is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and our participation in it. It is the gospel, it is the death and burial and resurrection of Christ that is the root of our Aspen Grove, our koinonia, our commonness. In other words, this is not a book club. We're not members of a sorority or fraternity. This is not a rotary club, although those are marvelous organizations. We are something about more than a social club here. We're about something more than coming and watching. We're about a common root system that is deeply embedded and foundational in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That seminal event is the center of all history. And we need to understand that in the macro sense. That's, that makes sense of all of history. That's the big picture. That gives meaning to not only all of the past, but all of the future. And Paul does a really good job of explaining this in Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. And, and it's, it's worth looking at real briefly. Uh, Galatians and Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. All right, look at this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before history began, the cross of Christ was the driving 
factor in God's choice. God did not, when Adam and Eve sinned, God was not shocked in the sense of, man, I never thought they'd do that. He had already made the decision that he would redeem humanity from its sinful choices through the finished work of Christ on the cross. He, before the foundation of the world, chose us in him that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, ladies, don't get offended here. This is not Paul being sexist. He's including you in that. You've been adopted as sons also. You say, well, I don't want to be adopted as a son. I want to be adopted as a daughter. Not under Roman law. Under ancient Roman law, you want to be adopted as a son, then you get full inheritance rights. Okay, so he's bringing you in with full rights here, okay? In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, and catch this at the end, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Because this is the center of history, past and future. The cross in the big picture sense is the center. But it's not just in the big picture sense, it's also in the micro sense, in the individual sense. And we see that in what Paul says because he says because of your koinonia, your partnership, your fellowship, your commonness, your Aspen Grove in the gospel from the first day until now. So this idea of the fellowship of the gospel is a recognition that, that we share in a corporate manner that historical broad sweep of the cross of Christ defining the past and ensuring the future. But on an individual basis, it defines who we are as well. You remove the cross of Christ from my life, and I'm a blowhard lawyer who has daughters that he's really proud of and a son he's really proud of and two incredible new grandbabies. But you infuse my life with the gospel with the cross of Christ and I've got a meaning and I've got a purpose that far exceeds everything else because I've been declared righteous by the holy God and restored into a relationship with him which will transform me personally from who I was to whom I can be and the same is true for every one of us 
And that's what we have in common. That's what binds us together. That's what makes us more than a book club or a social club, donut club. It's, it's, it's the fact that we are knit, K-N-I-T, we are knit into the very fabric of history. That seminal event that defines all of human history, past and future, is that seminal event that defines me and you and what we share. All right, second point of focus. So what are some of the fruits of this common sharing we have in the death of Christ? Where's the fruition of the gospel? Well, let's pick back up where we were. Paul gives a third reason he's thankful. I am sure of this. Papoithos is a perfect participle, and that's a causal participle in the Greek. So he says, it's, it's this, in other words, here's a third reason that he's thankful, a third causal reason. I'm confident of this. Auto tauto is, is, all right, so this first word in the Greek, Pepoithos is, is, is um, being confident, okay? But auto tauto is like saying the same thing twice because he's really emph emph emphatic. He says, I'm confident of this very thing. This very thing. You pay attention because this is something, and, and there may even be some ascendant here, uh, uh, another way of putting emphasis it depends on how you read this clause in the the greater context but but Paul is, doesn't use the word and which typically you might see in the Greek you might say chi but but he doesn't do that because he's really trying to make an emphatic point here he really wants you to pay attention and when you're hearing this read to you it, it jilts a little bit and he really wants you to focus that he said I'm absolutely convinced there's not a doubt in my mind I'm positive of this very thing, this very specific important thing, that he who began, oh, I'm sure, I, yeah, I underlined that, didn't I? There you go, of this. That he who began, and Arxamenos is, is uh, uh, again, a, a participle. Um, it's one that's referencing something that happened earlier in time, uh, which is what you'd expect with began. It's something earlier in time that God has done, which has some present consequences as we read. This aorist participle, though, is something that God's already started. Okay? God's already began. Look, you belong to Jesus? Don't say, oh, I can't wait for God to get to work on me. He's already working on you. He's already started it. It's historical. It's, it happened. The minute you gave your life to him, he started working on you. And Paul says, I'm confident, absolutely confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Will bring it to completion. 
epitelesi in the Greek, um, teleo, the, the word for completion is also perfection. Um, it, it's the, the, the verb that Christ used on the cross when he said it is finished, it's, it's completed. It's, it's this idea that God, who started a good work, is going to finish it. God's already started it. Paul is confident he's going to finish it. By the way, this um, anarxomenos and um, epitelesi is real Pauline language, and we had it in Galatians 3.3. um, Paul uses all sorts of analogies. He uses race analogies a lot, like running. Um, I don't know if that means he was fast and he ran, or he just wished he was. I was, I was, I loved to play basketball, but my career was cut short because it turns out I was slow, but I was short. And um, <laughs> bad tandem, I didn't have anything it took to play basketball. Um, but boy, I loved it. And uh, that's okay, you could be short and slow in debate. Um, so uh, that was my course instead. Um, but, but Paul said in Galatians 3.3, having started with the spirit are you going to finish with the flesh you know he uses he start and finish you start the race you finish the race God started it God started an ergon agathon a good work in you God started it he he's gonna finish it there's not a doubt in Paul's mind I mean Paul doesn't use those exact same words but he says the same thing in first Corinthians one, four through nine, it's interesting to see how he says it to them. It uses, again, a different set of language, but it's the same idea. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. You're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship, the Aspen Grove of His Son. Jesus Christ our Lord. I, you know who says it best? Bob Dylan. <laughs> Do I have some good volume on this computer? You ready? Here it goes. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> Nailed it. Stuck the landing. 10.0. God don't make promises that he don't keep. It is something that allows Paul to say, I'm confident, I'm sure of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus.
Now, that's an interesting phrase. At the day of Christ Jesus. Um, there's an Old Testament concept that Paul's borrowing here. Not borrowing, that, that he's um, using as his touchstone of his language. In the Old Testament, there are these prophetic comments about the day of the Lord. You read about it especially in the prophets, Micah 3, Micah 4, Joel 2. The day of the Lord is a fearsome day. It's a day that should leave many quaking in their boots. Look at what he says in Micah 3. We'll read through this really quickly. I said, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Isn't it for you to know justice? You who hate good and love evil, who tear skin off from my people and flesh from their bones and eat the flesh of my people? They're going to cry to the Lord, but the Lord won't answer them. He's going to hide his face from them at that time because they've made their deeds evil. But thus says the Lord concerning prophets who lead my people astray, crying, peace. Because there are these people who are going around saying, oh, God's not going to do anything. It's all peace. It's all good. Everything's going to be peachy keen. I'll tell you, you can find people today. Says, oh, God is love. Everything's going to be wonderful. Doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter who you are. Just have a good heart. Who needs Jesus anyway? Because he's just a light to show you a way. There are people who say, you know, God can't mean that. That's, that's an old concept. You know, everything gets redefined by what we think it ought to be. And that was going on 500 years before Jesus. And they were saying, God's not going to do it. Look, God's a God of love. He's not going to let anything happen to us. Peace, peace, peace. It says, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray who cry peace when they have something to eat but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. And he just starts going through all of this stuff that's going to happen and how God is going to do all of these things in the fearsome day of the Lord where, where uh, uh, it's going to come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains and lifted up above the hills and the nations will flow to it. But this is going to be judgment. This is the day of the Lord. Out of Zion will go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he'll judge between many people. And he'll decide for the strong nations far away. And they're going to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. All of this is going to happen in the day of the Lord. So it's a fearsome day. It's a day where, where God is going to bring judgment. But it's also a day that's not only a fearsome day of judgment it's a day for the believer that's a positive day it's a day there we go the day of the lord is a day of judgment for the world and the wicked but for those of us in christ it's the completion of the good work god started in us i mean it's like death if, if, if there's no God, 
If, if there's no life after death, then just live as long as you can, as long as you want to, and when you're done, check out. And then when someone dies who's dear to us, we grieve because they're gone, snuffed out. But in faith, understanding there is a God and there is, it, it's not bad news when someone dies. Oh, we grieve because we miss them. But we do not grieve like the world grieves because we know the eternal presence of our God has ensured us. God don't make promises that he don't keep. And he's going to bring to completion the good work he started in us. And so as Paul hearkens back to the great day of the Lord, Micah 3 and 4 and in Joel 2, we need to understand that the great day of the Lord is different for us than for the others. By the grace of God. And this is the fruit of the gospel. This is the fruit of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And it's true on a macro scale, but it's true on a micro scale. It applies to you and it applies to me. And because of that, it changes who we are and how we do things. Because God is already at work. Where's Larry Burgess? He's always in here. There you are, Larry. Here's where I think Tom does us a good service. Because Tom focuses on the way the gospel not only, well, Tom, I, don't, I, I tend to focus the differently than Tom on, on some aspects of it. But on this, I, I agree with Tom. That, that God is about transforming who we are right now. God is at work in us. Look at the way Paul says it in Romans 6, 21 and 22. What fruit... Were you getting at that time, before the gospel of, uh, changed your life, from the things of which you're now ashamed? You used to do stuff. Didn't shame you at all. But now that you've come under the gospel, you're ashamed. For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to holiness and to its end, eternal life. I mean, this is the fruit of the gospel. The gospel is not simply a forgiveness of our sins. The gospel is, is a transformative power that changes who we are. That changes how we live. And this is, this is why life in the gospel is a different life. If you have not experienced the changes that God can make, focus on this for a minute. My, my uh, Greek professor, Dr. Floyd, used to use this analogy, and it was so formative in my brain, I'm sure I've used it countless times, and you can finish it for me, but it really plugs in here, so I'm saying it again. He said that, you know, we want to bear good fruit for the Lord, but if we're really going to bear good fruit, if we're going to be good apples on that apple tree, 
then we need to have a tree that's deeply rooted and well fertilized and, and, and with nutrients and water and, and, and all of the things necessary to make the tree grow. And the natural result of that are going to be good fruit. And our concern needs to be on the tree, knowing the fruit will follow. Dr. Floyd said, don't ever think you're going to get an apple tree by going down to Kroger's and buying a sack of apples and some scotch tape. I'm running out to that oak tree in your backyard and taping those apples on the limbs. You have not made an apple tree. You've made an oak tree with apples taped on the limbs. God's concern is not simply that we have the fruit. The concern is, are we in the grove with the root system that produces that fruit? And if you're looking at your life saying, man, I don't have the fruit. I don't see the fruit in my life. My suggestion to you is don't go to Kroger's and buy a bag of apples. Don't just sit there and say, I'm going to be more patient. I'm going to be more patient. I'm going to be more patient. No. Spend time in the cross of Christ, thinking about it, praying about it, reflecting on it. I love our worship music. And I love the fact that we're getting younger people up there to help us uh, worship because I, I like the fact we're charging that next generation. Once I hit my 60s, I'm like all about in, empowering the next generation. Yeah, that's who we hand the baton to, right? So let, let the young people get up there and learn how to do it. Keep doing that, Brent Dyer. I'm proud of you. But I still love those old hymns that speak into us theology and speak into us understanding and draw us to the cross of Christ. These hymns, beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. The shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land, a hope within the wilderness, a rest upon the way from the burning of the noontide heat and the burden of the day. I take, O cross, thy shelter, shadow, shadow or shelter, as my abiding place. I ask no other comfort than the sunshine of his face. Content to let the world go by, to know no gain or loss. My sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but lost and poor contempt on all my pride. You spend your time thinking prayerfully about what God has done for you and the fruit will transform like you've never seen. And the things that appeal to you before won't appeal to you in the same way. And you will see little by little every day God changing you and transforming you into the likeness of His Son. And he's going to do that. Now, sometimes we are so bad at ignoring him that he does things to bring us to our knees. I don't want to be there. I want to pay attention the first time. This is life in the gospel. Look at it. 
It's right for me, Paul says, to feel this way about you all. Phroneo in the Greek is translated feel. It's an interesting word. Phroneo is a mindset. It's, it's a disposition, an attitude. It's holding an opinion. Paul will use it, uh, 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 he'll, he'll use it with the word high in the Greek to mean arrogance and pride. You know, it's holding a haughty opinion of yourself. Your nose in the air type thing. But, but Paul, Paul uses the word in Philippians. It's going to be a key word. He uses it ten times in this book. Paul only uses it in all of his writings put together 23 times or so. So almost half of all of it in this short little four-chapter book. It's the mindset. And he's going to want us to have our opinion, our mindset, our disposition, our attitude with all that means. And he says, so the NIV folks translate it, feel, it's only right for me to feel this way, to have this attitude, to have this disposition. It's a good way to translate it. To feel this way about you. Because I hold you in my heart. Look at this, I hold, echo. It's actually in an infinitive form here to hold because Paul says, and, and, and he's, he's present. It's a present infinitive. It, 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 it is something that's constant. It's moment by moment. It's day by day. It's always with him. This is, this is Paul saying, I, I, it's not, man, I really liked you. <laughs> it's right now. Moment by moment, just as I live, I really, I, I'm holding you, holding you in my heart. And I really, really like that. I, I hold you in, the, in, 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 in my heart. So it's, it's I hold, well, to hold, it's me holding in the heart, you me, I'm holding in my heart you. You. There's a real tenderness here. Paul is telling these, these folks that he cares so deeply for them. That he thinks about them. This is commonness. This is grounded in the cross of Christ. We're all in this together. I don't remember what show that was, my daughters, but y'all had some show we watched 80,000 times on the Disney Channel where they sang, we're all in this together. What was it? High School Musical. <laughs> Paul probably inspired that entire Disney movie. <laughs> There's a real tenderness to this. I hold you in my heart, but look at the reasons why. He says, I hold you in my heart. In, in my imprisonment and in my uh, apologia, my defense and my uh, confirmation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The gospel. In our English translations, it gets bumped down to the bottom. But in the Greek, it's a lot higher up. I hold you in my heart because you and I are all partakers together of the gospel. This, this gospel is something that we, see if you see this in the Greek. So you've got gospel, then here's a compound of two words. 
if you take this S-U-G off the front, do you recognize what that word is? It's our Aspen Grove word, koinonia. See? So it's translated, you're partakers. We're in the same Aspen Grove together with me. And it's partakers of the gospel, the grace, the gift of God. And that's what Paul's got for us. Paul understands that this Aspen Grove is there for all of us. That we're all commonly rooted in living the, 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 the fruit, the life that comes from being rooted in the cross of Christ. So Paul continues. And yes, I love this passage. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Martus is the first word, witness. You know what he's doing there? Paul just went all lawyer on us. He's taking an oath. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. I do. That's what Paul's doing. He's saying, I'm taking the oath before God. Now, I almost plugged in the Frankie Valley and Four Seasons song, Swearing to God. There's no place on this earth I'd rather be. But then I decided that that's probably um, blasphemous. So I did not plug it in. But this is not a blasphemous oath. This is Paul saying, I'm taking the oath. God is my witness. I swear to tell the truth to God. So help me God. How I yearn for you all. With the, uh, whoops, uh, let's see if I've got it up here. Yeah, with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, <laughs> uh, splink noise um, literally means the entrails, the intestines. Um, so let's uh, take just a moment and do some anatomy. Um, I don't see Dr. Sandifer in here, Dr. Sherry, you're not in here, but we've got others. We've got nurses, we've got doctors, we've got EMTs, we've got health experts. Oh, Dan's in, going to med school, he starts in just a few weeks. Dan, you probably know all this stuff. I'm tempted to call you up here, but I won't. <laughs> Today we know that your thinking is done in the brain, the neural synapses. Maybe not totally. I mean, you've got other parts of the body that seem to think and react and stuff, what we would classify as thinking, but main, main source of your thinking and, and all is up here. Um, your heart is what's beating the blood. Okay? But in our romantic times gone by, we would associate the heart with the feelings. So we'd have Valentine's Day. Like, Dr. Bob, I'm sure you give Kelly every Valentine's Day probably a a box of chocolates in a heart shape, really big, really big heart. Yes, that's Bob. And, and we think of the heart as, as the seat of emotions. Um, all too often we think of the intestines as, uh, 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 ugh, you know, I can't believe I ate the whole thing. If you remember that commercial, plop, plop, fizz, fizz, oh, what a relief it is. Um, that's not 
Our anatomical understanding did not exist in the ancient Hebrew time. And so in the ancient Hebrew time, Old Testament speak, the heart was the center of your thought. It was the center of your essence as a person. Your intestines, your entrails, were the seat of your emotions. And so as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Because they, they, they thought of the heart like that. But the entrails um, uh, is, is the expression out of, I think the King, old King James would use the word bowels. Out of his bowels shall flow rivers of living water or something. You know, it, it, it was this, um, uh, the entrails, that's where the emotion was. And we still sort of have it, you know, do you feel it in your gut is our expression. So the Greeks didn't necessarily use it the same way, but Paul's using these words in a very Hebrew sense. And so Paul's talking about, I yearn for you all with the splank noise of Christ Jesus. By the way, when Judas hangs himself, you remember, after betraying Jesus, his splank noise spilled out. He, he, he not only hung himself and physically lost his intestines, but his emotional everything gone um the the entrails of christ paul did not referencing jesus's true intestines he's just using the word in a very jewish sense of affections and, and it's and it's an emotional comment that paul's making here god's my witness i long for you with the the affections of christ jesus i mean look that cross is a reflection of the affection of Christ Jesus. The whole purpose of, uh, the, 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 the whole drive behind the gospel is the affection of Christ Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So for Paul to use this actually unusual expression, even for Paul, the affection of Christ Jesus... It's still so deeply rooted in that picture Paul's got of the Jesus who was willing to take on the curse that belonged to us. Um, if you heard my video thought for the day this week on, uh, and thank you by the way for urging me to do crowns, uh, that came from this class. Um, but I talked about how the, the Greek word Stephanos, which is Stephen, but it also just means wreath or crown, is what would be given to the victor of a race, or the winner of a wrestling match, or the winner of a um, boxing match. Uh, if you had a party, it could be a party garland for the, the centerpiece of the party. But it would be an award, a recognition that would be given out to people. And don't you know, kids being kids, would play with that. I mean, kids are going to have races, so they're going to grab the grapevine that's been cut or snapped off, and they'll make the wreath to give to the winner of the race. Kids played with that stuff all the time. 
And that was your award. That was your trophy. That was your medal. Now, the point of this is that, that Paul would have played with those. I suspect Jesus would have played with those as a little tyke. But Jesus is crowned before his crucifixion with a crown, a wreath of thorns that would pierce his skin. That would make a mockery. Here's your reward. Here's what you get. And I got to tell you, that crown he wore, that award of his, is you and me before the crucifixion. And then the Bible goes on to say after the crucifixion, we become his joyous crown. Because God don't make promises that he don't keep. And he takes those thorns that we were before the resurrection and through the resurrection puts them to death. And in the new life that we've got creates in us a crown. And, and that wreath, that crown that we've got is the one that we lay down before him because worthy are thou to receive joy and honor and power. That's, that's it. I mean, we are here. And so Paul can talk about this and Paul can say to him, you know, this is the affection of Christ. He would wear that crown of thorns for you and turn you into a crown of gold. So, so that's the power of the cross. And then Paul finishes this passage. And it's my prayer that your love may abound. Malon kai malon. Don't just say more. Don't just say abound. He says heaps and heaps, lots and lots, more and more. That your uh, uh, agape is the word he's using for love here. That your agape—that's a very service-oriented love. It's a very—it's—it's uh, it's a love that's um, shown, exercised, put into action. That your action love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment that you will have your love your service for each other abounding and growing with knowledge and discernment look so that you may approve what is excellent let's pause for a moment because Paul went uh uh, I, was, I was reading this passage yesterday with uh, Dan Wallace. And uh, Dan's a Greek wizard, almost as good as David Capes, but no, almost. No, <laughs> no Dan is like extraordinary Greek scholar. He's uh, uh, the Committee on Translation of the New International Version is going to be meeting at our library this week to, to work on their translation work. And Dan is one of their translators, and he's just a, a marvelous gentleman and a marvelous Christian scholar. And he pointed out to me something on this passage that I had missed when I had read it myself. He said, you know, let, let me step back. John, you read John, the Apostle John in the Greek, and he's got ambiguous, double entendre, double meaning passages just like all the time. He uses words, he's like a poet. And, and it's always got two or three meanings, and, and you, he wants you to have all of them. You know, it's just the way he writes. Paul writes like a lawyer. It's precise. It's never, I mean, it's real clear. Boom, 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 by and large. 
But here's one where Paul writes something with two meanings. You can take it two ways, and I think Paul intends it to be taken both. It's these words, approve and excellent. So approve, dokimazo, also means to test. I'm going to test you. And the word that's excellent, diafero, is the idea of something that exceeds expectations. But it's also something that's different. can mean both. And so this passage that's translated, I want your love to grow more and more in knowledge and discernment so that you can approve what's excellent. Oh, that's good. That's excellent. I approve that. But also so you can test what's different. So you're able to look and make a test and make an assessment. You're able to figure out what's right and what's wrong. And we want to do that. And so Paul says, I want that to happen. I want you to be able to not just approve what's excellent, but I want you to be able to test and figure out what's different, what's right, and what's wrong. And you can do that, and in that way you become pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Again, not going back to that. See, filled with the fruit of righteousness. That comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This fruit of righteousness. This is the fruit of the gospel. This is the fruit of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. This is the fruit that leads to sanctification and eternal life. And you see this and you begin to understand why Paul could tell the Corinthians, I resolved to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Because when you get the gospel, it transforms you. Not just for eternity, but in the here and now. Okay? Points to ponder. One, our fellowship is special. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And the more time we spend together, the more that becomes more and more true. So thank you for being here. Thank you for tuning in. But thank you for being rooted in this Aspen Grove with me. I love you guys, and it means the world to me that we share together that commonality. Point number two. The key to it, though, is the gospel. And this is that Corinthians passage I just referenced. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the story. That's the central event of history on a macro scale and a micro scale. And then finally, let's grow. May our love abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so we can test and approve what's excellent and what's different. We've got to go to church. I want to bless you uh, before we do. Uh, Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray your blessings on all who hear this message that you would draw us into that common root of the gospel and use it to infuse our life as we entrust in you that task of completing this good work you've already begun. Begun through Jesus our Lord, through whom we pray. Amen.